to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. You sold me, but God sent me. And... Um, so often we look at negative experiences in our lives and, and they're negative until we reinterpret them by bringing God into the picture. They're negative experiences until we reinterpret them and see what God was actually doing. And sometimes it takes, you know, you can only see it after the fact. Sometimes it's only in hindsight that you can see, but God actually was working here. God actually was using the situation. Yes, it wasn't pleasant. I was sold as a slave in Joseph's case. But God was actually working in the situation. And I needed for this to happen. And the people that God wanted to reach needed for this to happen to me. So that God could do what he wanted to do. And, um, you know, I, I think God is challenging us to reinterpret our lives. You know, it's so easy for us to look at our lives as though we're just a product of our decisions and the decisions of other people, whether good or bad. And I think God is challenging us to reinterpret our lives and see His hand and His influence in our lives, superimposed upon the decisions that we make and other people make around us. We need to see God's decisions that He makes for our lives. And then... The amazing thing is that often those negative experiences become positive experiences. Become opportunities for us to testify and say, but God turned my mess into a message. God turned my test into a testimony. God actually changed me and saved me through what I went through. And God actually saved, changed other people and saved other people through what I went through. And that doesn't mean that the, the, um, the difficulty of the situation disappears, but all of a sudden we see it in a new light, like Joseph did. Um, and and that's, that's where my encouragement comes from, uh, um, you know, these last couple of weeks, you know. Let us live everywhere as though God sent us there. Let us live everywhere as though God sent us there. And I just want to take us to another uh, few verses from Joseph's life. This is specifically at the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, from this 19, um, possibly some of the most well-known portions of Joseph's life. This is right at the end, um, just after Jacob had died. And his brothers are sort of worried, you know, that Joseph's going to take revenge on them. And, and Joseph comforts them and he says to them in Genesis 50 verse 19, he says, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? I, I just want to stop there for a moment. Because that's what's at stake here. How do we see God? What place does God occupy in our lives? And I want to submit to you that for, even for many of us as Christians, God occupies a very small space in our lives. A very insignificant, a very powerless position in our lives. Many, many people out there in the world uh, see God as just sort of something that people made up. We had a need, we register a need for salvation, and therefore we create a God. We invent a God that saves us. But he's not really powerful. But what I want to, want to uh, submit to you is that God is actually, whether you're a believer or whether you're not a believer, God is a lot more powerful in your life than you realize. Often, the problem with our thinking is that we think, unlike Joseph, we think that we're in the place of God. We make the decisive moves in our lives. We make the decisive decisions. Our lives only depend on us and the decisions we make and the actions we take. And nothing else. And Joseph was a bit more wise. He came to the realization, no. Am I in the place of God? No, I've learned I'm not God. God is God. And then he says, these powerful words, he says, You intended to harm me. Literally, he says, you intended it. For evil. You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. 
And I, I, I want to um, just trace a f- uh, two themes, and I'll tell you what they are now uh, through Joseph's life and then through, um, the rest, uh, through other places in Scripture and, and, and through a few testimonies as well. Um, but what, what I want us to see is, I mean, we're talking about we must live everywhere as though God sent us there. And, and, and I think we all realize by now how powerful that can be if we all, if every single one of us lives everywhere as though God sent us there. I mean, that would, I mean, we'd be a really countercultural, life changing, community transforming church and people. But we can't live everywhere as though God sent us there unless God intends to send us everywhere we live. Okay? We can't live everywhere as though God sent us there unless God actually intends to send us everywhere we live. Okay? And, and I think. Um, that's what we see in, in Joseph's story. We see two things, and I'm just going to mention them up front. And then I hope as we go through the story, you're going to see them. Number one, we see that Joseph's, all of Joseph's coincidences were divine coincidences. If you start in Genesis verse, uh, chapter 37 and you read the rest of the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph, you re- and you realize it, and you read it with, with discernment, you realize that all of Joseph's coincidences were divine coincidences. I mean, there are just too many coincidences. Things just work out too, too well in the end. Things just fall into place. And I mean, from the beginning, God says, this is how it's going to happen. And in the end, it happens exactly like that. And, and during the story, you know, if you didn't know the end, you'd think like, okay, things are going wrong. I mean, uh, he had a dream, but this dream was obviously nonsense. Exactly the opposite of the dream is happening. I mean, instead of people bowing down to him, he's the slave and he's bowing down. (laughs) You think things go go wrong. But you realize very quickly that all of Joseph's coincidences are divine coincidences. And then in the end, especially in this verse uh, 20 of, of Genesis 50, he says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. God intended it. For good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. All of those divine coincidences was God working together for good. What was God's intention for good? Okay, and I think that is important. It's important for us to realize that God only has good intentions when He is so powerfully and sovereignly at work in our lives. I mean, it would be quite scary (laughs) if someone with as much power as God and as much influence as God, as much sovereignty as God was at work in our lives, but he wasn't working for good. That would be rather scary, right? But the assurance in Joseph's life, and as we're going to see throughout the rest of Scripture, is that God is working for good to save lives. And we don't always understand it when we're in the situation, how he's doing it. But he's always working to save because he is a saving God. Okay. So, let's just uh, look at Joseph's life um, as an example. Joseph uh, was about 17 years old. And his dad loved him more than the other kids. Because, I mean, his dad um, firstly had four wives. Okay. And if his dad didn't have four wives and the wife he loved most, I mean, you all know the story in the, earlier in Genesis, and George was sharing, um, referring to it a couple of weeks ago, of how Jacob actually got his wives, how he tricked his brother into getting the firstborn right, and then his uncle Laban was a bigger trickster than him, tricked him you know, into first marrying Leah, the older daughter, whom he was struggling to sort of marry off, and then you know, married Rachel, and then he's got the two maidservants as well. So he, he had four wives. If he didn't have four wives and he didn't love Rachel more, he would not have loved Joseph more, and everything that happened in Joseph's life wouldn't have happened. All things out of Joseph's control. Then, I mean, he showed that love in such a way that the other brothers could see it. Our dad loves Joseph more, and they hated him for it. And he gave him this, you know, technicolor dream coat, you know, that none of the other sons had. So he was like flaunting this love, and they hated him. And if they didn't hate him, nothing that happened in his life after that would have happened. 
And then he gets these dreams, also outside of his control. He gets these dreams from God about his brother's um, sheaves bowing down to him and the sun, moon, and uh, 11 stars bowing down to him. And not only, here's the thing, I mean, I, I think his brothers could have possibly still borne the insult of not being as loved as he were, as he was, if it were not for the dreams. So not only did the dreams, we still have sound great, <laughs> not, <laughs> not only did the dreams tell us what the ultimate outcome of Joseph's life would be, but they influenced that outcome. Can you see that? Can you see how the dreams weren't only a warning, okay, this is what's going to happen. The dreams made it happen. When he shared the dream, if he hadn't shared those dreams with his brothers, his brothers would not later have said, here comes the dreamer. You know, let's kill him. And then see what comes of his dreams. Because that's what happened. He told these dreams, and it so upset his brothers that they wanted to kill him. So here he goes. He's at home. You know, he's probably studying, you know. Very privileged position. His brothers are out in the field doing manual labor as, as, as um, shepherds. And his father says, you know, after a couple of days, you know, go and check on your brothers. And, and he was in the habit of, you know, checking on his brothers and then bringing back a bad report. That was one of the other reasons why they hated him so much. He was, you know, he, he was, um, you know, telling dad, you know, all the naughty things they were doing. So they didn't like him at all. So, so now dad sends him again. And he goes to, to the place... Um, where they were, where they were supposed to be, and they weren't there. And then, coincidentally, he, he bumps into another guy. And this guy, he says, listen, I'm looking for my brothers. Yeah, yeah, they went to Dothan. If he hadn't met the guy, he wouldn't have found his brothers. Coincidence, you know. Goes to, to Dothan, and he's coming along, and his brothers see him at a distance, and they say, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him and see what comes becomes of his dreams. Can you see the irony in that? Can you see the irony in the fact that they were actively trying to prevent his dreams from coming true and the things that they did to prevent his dreams from coming true actually caused his dreams to come true. Can you see that? Can you see how, 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 how the coincidences in his life are divine coincidences? And then coincidence, um, you know, they were actually wanting to kill him and throw him into this dry this dry pit. But Reuben, um, for some other reason, you know, feels sorry for him and says, listen, let's not shed blood. Let's not kill him. Let's just throw him alive into this dry pit. And, and, and he intended to come back and, and, and save him. And then Reuben leaves, probably to go and get a piece of rope or something so he can, you know, draw Joseph out of the well. And while Reuben is gone, his brothers, his other brothers, sell him to the Ishmaelites. These Ishmaelites come along, firstly. Now, just Notice this, and, and, and we often don't think about these things deeply enough, and we don't give Scripture enough credit. Who were the Ishmaelites? They were family. Think a couple of generations ago. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham had two sons. The first one was Ishmael, because he couldn't have sons with his wife Sarah, she took her maidservant, Hagar, Egyptian maidservant, and gave her to Abraham and said, okay, have children with her. And he has Ishmael. And then later on, he does, according to God's promise, have Isaac with Sarah. And then there's this, this squabble between them. Um, and and Ishmael, he's the older brother, he's, he's bullying Isaac. And, and, and Sarah just had enough and said, listen, send Hagar and and Ishmael away. And firstly, Abraham doesn't want to do it. And later on, God says to him, no, do it. Because the promise will be through Isaac, not through Ishmael. And then Abraham says, but, but he's my son. God, said, God says, he gives all these promises about Isaac. I'm going to make him a great nation. And all the nations will be blessed through him. And, 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 and Abraham says, but, 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 but Ishmael is my son too. He's also my flesh and blood. And God says, fine, I will bless him too. He will also be a nation. But he'll be at war with all his brethren. He'll be like a wild man. <laughs> and we see it even today. Okay? The, uh, the whole um, Islamic faith 
uh, and, and all of that comes to a very large extent from Ishmael, and we see that prophecy being fulfilled. Um, but, but he sends them into the desert, and they would have died. In fact, Hagar puts Ishmael under a tree and says, just lie there and die under the tree. I don't want to see you dying. And she goes a little bit away and just goes and cries to the Lord. I mean, imagine that as a mother. And God appears to her, and he reveals himself as the God who sees. And they're now saved. Now, if Abraham had not struggled to have children and had this Ishmael son with Agar, and if God had not saved Ishmael in the desert, these Ishmaelites, the grandchildren of Ishmael, would not have come along, would not have been there to come along, to come and buy Joseph, the grandson of Isaac, and sell him as a slave in Egypt. Can you see the divine coincidences? Okay, now we go on. And um, the amazing thing is every time, I mean, whether people like his brothers or the Ishmaelites, whether they, they knowingly trying to oppose what God is doing and what God has said will happen, or whether they unknowingly just, you know, acting unjustly, you know, as slave traders or whatever, God continues to bless Joseph. And he comes, he gets sold as a slave to Potiphar and says the Lord was with him. And the Lord blessed everything he did. And he had success in everything he did. So much so that his slave owner, Potiphar, noticed it and appointed him as um, you know, his household manager over everything he had. And, and it says he concerned him about nothing, himself about nothing, except the food that he ate. Joseph ran the whole show. And God blessed Potiphar in his house because of Joseph. All of Joseph's coincidences are divine coincidences. And then coincidence, Potiphar's wife is there. And she likes Joseph. He's this fine-looking, handsome, it says, young, 17-year-old, and she starts checking him out. She starts checking him out. And Joseph keeps resisting. He says, no, he doesn't even want to spend time with her. Eventually, she corners him, and she says, come, come to bed with me. And she grabs his cloak, and he says, how can I do this to my God? And he pulls away, and he runs away, and he runs out. And, and then when he ran out, she screamed. Now, this is a shrewd lady. You must, you must see this lady. I mean, I can, I can so see, you know, th- this rings so true to me. Because what happens is she screams. He runs, leaving his cloak behind. She rips it off. And, and then she screams. But then she keeps the cloak with her. I mean, she's really shrewd. You know, she keeps the cloak with her. This is evidence. Now she's, she, she, I mean, how no fury like a woman scorned? <laughs> she's been scorned and she's angry. She's going to get back. She's going to get back at him. So she keeps this cloak as evidence until her husband comes, you know, crying, you know, making sure that all the mascara is running down the face, you know, so the husband can see she's really been crying. And then she tells him this story. This Hebrew slave that you brought, okay, now she's firstly making him feel guilty about it, that you brought into this house has come into my room to make sport of me. He's trying to, he was trying to seduce me. Now she's playing the victim and making as though he was the perpetrator. But listen what she says. She, when she tells the story, she just makes a, a little change. She just flips two things around. Instead of saying, he ran out and I screamed, she says, I screamed and he ran out. Very shrewd. Makes her story believable. Her husband believes her and she's so angry, he puts Joseph in prison. Now if Potiphar, Potiphar had not had such a shrewd wife, Joseph would not have ended up in prison. And if he had not been in Potiphar's house, he would not have ended up in that prison because that was the specific prison where you know, Potiphar was the, 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 the captain of, of Pharaoh's guard. That was the specific prison where Pharaoh's prisoners were sent to. Once again, he comes into the prison. God is with him. The Lord blesses him so much so that the prison warden sets him over all the prison. A prisoner ruling the prison. Joseph just ends up ruling everywhere he goes because God is with him, and that's the gifting God has given him. But here's the thing. A, couple, a while later, because it's Pharaoh's prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker get sent there. And if Joseph hadn't been in that prison, he would not have met those men. He would not have met the cupbearer who would eventually tell Pharaoh about him. Can you see the, all the coincidences? And in coincidence... These two guys, the baker, Pharaoh's baker and Pharaoh's cupbearer, also have dreams, just like Joseph had dreams in the beginning. 
And he's there to interpret those dreams. In other words, they're coincidentally there to experience Joseph's gift. And the dreams come true exactly. In three days, they come true exactly like Joseph said. And then, Joseph says to the cupbearer, or he says to the baker, okay, you're going to lose your head. That happens in three days. Um, he says to the cupbearer, you're going to be reinstated, but remember me when Pharaoh reinstates you. And guess what? The guy forgets him. For two years. Now, just think about this for a moment. Just think about this for a moment. Here is a guy in prison. You had a dream. He interpreted the dream. The dream came exactly true. How on earth are you going to forget that? I mean, who's going to forget that? Coincidence. Can you see the coincidence? And then then exactly at the right time, two years later when, surprise, Pharaoh has two dreams like Joseph had two dreams. And like the baker and the cupbearer had two dreams. And no one can interpret it. It says he calls all the magicians of the land together. No one can interpret it. He has guys who have PhDs in dream interpretation. They've studied at the University of Cairo. And they've all, I mean, they all got their degrees cum laude. I mean, they're the cream of the crop. They cannot interpret, none of them, nothing. It's just gone. They don't have anything for him. They cannot interpret these dreams. I mean, this is their job. This is their job, and they can't do it. And then the cupbearer remembers, oh, there's this little Hebrew slave I met in prison. He interpreted our dreams. It came exactly true. And at exactly the right time, Joseph comes, you know, just has enough time to shave quickly and, you know, bath and put on some new clothes, and he stands before Pharaoh. And, Pharaoh, and he interprets Pharaoh's dream, and Pharaoh is so impressed, he appoints him as governor of the whole of Egypt. Can you see how all the coincidences in Joseph's life were, were divine coincidences? Can you see that? Can you see that? Why were there those divine coincidences there? In, in, in Genesis 50 verse 20 he tells us, God in, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done, the saving of many lives. God is constantly at work. He was constantly at work in Joseph's life, making sure that everything worked out exactly the way he wanted it to. He intended it to. So that he could save many lives. So that he could do the good that he wanted to do. They might say to me, Ah, any, but that's, that's the Old Testament. That's Joseph, you know. I mean, what, what does that have to do with us as Christians under the new covenant? Things are, surely things are different now. Are they? Let's go to the next scripture, the next page. Romans 8, verse 28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, those who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined he also called, and those he called he also justified, and those he justified he also glorified. Notice. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Doesn't that remind you so much of Joseph's life and what Joseph says in Genesis 50 verse 20? What Paul seems to say here is exactly the two things we see in Joseph's life. Number one, it seems like our, according to Paul, our coincidences are divine coincidences. Right? I, I, I know I have the same trouble with the scripture that you have. This promise is too comprehensive, right? Right? Am I, am I wrong? I mean, it's, it's just too big. Surely that's impossible. Right? I, I have the same trouble with that promise. It's, it's, a, it's probably the most comprehensive promise in the Bible. It freaks me out. I don't understand it. It seems too big. It's, it's like, just no, hang on. How can I water this down so it actually makes sense? How can I reduce the scope of this promise so it actually fits into what I think is possible? Right? Am I the only one tempted to do that? Or are you tempted to do that too? It just seems too big. Like, God, do you really mean all things? You know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him? Maybe some things? 
maybe even most things. I'm even happy to go with that. But all things? Really, God? It's just too big. Okay? So I, I confess, I have the same trouble with this promise that you have. It, it, it's, it's too big for me. It's, it's hard for me to digest. It's hard for me to accept. But I see it in the life of Joseph. And, and this scripture puts me in the same place as Joseph. Not only was God working all things together for, for the good of Joseph and his family, but this promise says that God is working all things together for my good and for the good of the people around me. For all those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And notice, not only are all our divine, all, all our coincidences divine coincidences, but the purpose of those coincidences are exactly the same as in Joseph's life. God is working for good. Can you see that? God's intention is still good. And God will use people who don't have good intention, like Joseph's brothers. You intended it for evil. You intended to harm me. God will use people who have bad intentions in your life to accomplish his good intentions. Hello? Is that good news or what? That means the people, the nasty people in your life who are out to get you, out to nail you, don't have as much power as you think they have in your life. God ultimately is still the one who is in control of your life. And he's still, even through those evil intentions of evil people, he is intending good and working through his divine coincidences, everything together for your good. If you love him and are called according to his purpose. Does that require a bit of a mind shift? Does that require you to look back on your life like Joseph did and maybe reinterpret things a bit? Does that put your difficult situations and the sufferings and the bad stuff that you went through in a different light maybe? Does that maybe encourage you that maybe all of it was not futile? I know this takes a lot of faith. My challenge, my question to you is, to us is, do we have that kind of faith in God? Can, can, we, you know, can we only trust God for the, for the promises that seem manageable? Or are we willing to trust God for this promise that seems completely unmanageable and unrealistic? How much faith do we have in God? How much faith do we have in God? How much faith do I have in God? So, and, and just by the way, I just feel I need to mention this. That's why I, I put verse 22, 29 and 30 there as well. The good that God is working towards is us being conformed to the image of Christ. It's not like a superficial good of, okay, I get a new house and I get a new car and I get a, a better job and I get you know, a better girlfriend or boyfriend. Or it's, it's not that good. You know, it's, it's not good as per my selfish consumerist expectation and definition, right? It's not good according to my fallen, the, 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 the human expectancy, the fallen human expectancy that I have. It's good according to God's ultimate standard. Be, me becoming more like Jesus. That's my ultimate good. And that's the good that God's working towards. Now you might say, okay, yeah, any, fine. Okay, that's, that's Joseph, you know, in the Old Testament. That's Paul in the New Testament. That, that, that's the Bible. I mean, but, but do these things really happen outside of the Bible? Come on. You know, be realistic. So skeptical, my friend. <laughs> Let me tell you a story. Have you ever heard of St. Patrick's Day? When's St. Patrick's Day? Is it what? 30th of March. 17th of March, yeah. St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick, um, he, he's associated with the Irish, right? The Irish celebrate St. Patrick's Day especially, but he's actually not Irish. He's actually British, okay? So I just want to read you a little bit of his story, and that's going to, I think, really blow your mind, because what happens in his life is so close to what happens in Joseph's life. It says, Patrick's father was a nobleman, 
in Bonaventa on the southwestern coast of Britain. In fact, in that time, it wasn't really Britain. It was Britannia. It was the, the Roman province of Britannia. The, the Roman, it was part of the Roman Empire. So it wasn't Britain, you know, Anglo-Saxon Britain as we know it today. So Patrick's family was fairly wealthy. He lived in a villa and received a good education and could read and write Latin, the, the Roman official language, and, and Celtic, the, the native British language. Um, Patrick's grandfather, Potitus, was a presbyter, in other words, an elder in the local church, and his father was a deacon. Now, he lived in, in 390 to 461 AD, so that's the time of the, the Roman Catholic Church. So that's when the Roman Empire was Christian already. Okay? Um, it seems, however, that even though Patrick's grandfather and father were really part of the church and, and believers... And, and not just, you know, nominal believers, but committed believers in the, you know, active part of, of the church that they were in. You know, that Patrick was a bit rebellious towards, or at least indifferent to his parents' faith. In other words, it, it doesn't seem like, you know, as a teenager, he responded very well to the gospel. Or there's no evidence that he responded to the gospel at all. Even though he grew up in a Christian, quote-unquote, family. One day, when Patrick was about 15 or 16, the Irish sailed in, ransacked his house, captured him, and took him to Ireland. He was sold as a slave to a man called Mulchu, uh, who lived near the woods of Voclet uh, in northwestern Ireland. Here, Patrick spent six years working as a shepherd. He could have become bitter, but these years of slavery turned out to be a time of great spiritual growth during which he prayed endlessly as he watched over the sheep, and God spoke even spoke to him in dreams and visions. As he prayed, he, became, he grew so close to God that he really started having you know, serious experiences of God. I'm going to read you a few um, things in his own words from, his, from Patrick's own writing. He says, After I arrived in Ireland, I tended sheep every day, and I prayed frequently during the day. More and more, the love of God increased, and my sense of awe before God. Faith grew. My spirit was moved, so that in one day I would pray up to 100 times, and at night perhaps the same. I even remained in the woods and on the mountain, and I would rise to pray before dawn in snow and ice and rain. I never felt the worse for it, and I never felt lazy. As I realize now, the Spirit was burning in me at that time. You see the similarities as with Joseph? He's sold as a slave, and yet God is with him. Here, Patrick, he sold as a slave, as a young man. I mean, he was even younger than Joseph. Joseph was 17, he was 15, 16. Sold as a slave, but God is with him. And God is, despite his adverse circumstances that you would think, no, you know, surely someone, you know, who, who gets sold as a slave must have done something really bad so that God's judgment is coming upon him. Couldn't be further from the truth. God is working in his life. The Spirit is working in his heart, burning in his heart, drawing him closer to God. It was there one night in my sleep that I heard a voice saying to me, You have fasted well. Very soon you will return to your native country. And, and here God speaks to me in a dream. And just that first phrase, you have fasted well. I mean, what does that tell you about his situation? It tells you that his six years of slavery was a type of fast that God had chosen for him. And here God's commending him and saying, you have fasted well. You have fasted well. I chose this fast for you. You responded in the right way. You responded by drawing near to me and by serving where you are. Just like Joseph. By serving where you were. With a good attitude. It says again, after a short while, I heard a someone saying to me, Look, your ship is ready. It was not nearby, but a good 200 miles away. Okay, that's, what's that, 360, almost 400 kilometers. So it was, it was on the other side of Ireland, the island of Ireland. <laughs> and he says, um, I had never been to the place, nor did I know anyone there. So I ran away then and left the man with whom I had been for six years. It was in the strength of God that I went. God who turned the direction of my life to good. God intended it for good. God is, works all things together for our good. God who turned the direction of my life for good. What's he referring to when he says, God who turned the direction of my life for good? How did God turn the direction of his life for good? 
by having him sold as a slave. <laughs> that's, when, that's what he's referring to. Because that's when the spiritual good came into his life. That's when he got properly saved. And that's when he, grew, that's when he developed this amazing relationship with God. Where he just spent hours and hours speaking to God, communing with God, receiving dreams and visions from God. I feared nothing while I was on the journey to that ship. So he says, I mean, clearly God told him which town or city he has to go to. Because he says, yeah, I'd never been there. I didn't know anyone there. So, But clearly in the dream or in the vision, God told him, this is where you're supposed to go. Your ship is waiting for you there. It says, about ten years after being freed from slavery, Patrick returned to Ireland, the land of his captivity as a missionary to preach the gospel. He eventually baptized thousands of Irish and established many monasteries where the Bible and other literature was translated and preserved. One of the main reasons Patrick was so close to God and was such an effective witness in Ireland was because of the six years of slavery. It was during this time that he drew near to God and got to know the Irish culture. Because he'd spent those six years there, when he came back to Ireland... As a missionary, he knew the Irish culture, he knew the language, he knew the culture, he knew their customs and their ways. And he could contextualize the gospel for Ireland. He could apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to Ireland in a way that changed that country. And thousands upon thousands of Irish were converted. I mean, if I had more time, I would have told you some of the... Just the... the, the, I almost want to say sovereign open doors in the culture of the Irish. Let me maybe just mention one of them. The Irish, um, they were quite a warlike people in that time, you know, and, and there was a lot of tribalism and fighting. And, you know, they, just like Patrick, you know, had his village raided and he got abducted as a slave, so they would do inside of Ireland as well. You know, different villages and tribes would attack one another and, you know, kill one another and abduct one another as slaves and all that kind of stuff. And you never knew, you know, when your village would be decimated. And, um, but they had a specific approach to battle. They didn't, they weren't big on strategy and, you know, all that kind of stuff. They relied on heroism as they called it you know there, there, there would be you know they would hope that in in in, in the in the decisive battle there would be one hero who through his bravery you know who would win you know the battle for them in other words you know the the the, the one who stood out the one who 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 made the great sacrifice the warrior who won the day and then G, then then saint patrick could come and say but you know jesus is that one he's that hero he's that warrior who through his immense bravery sacrificed his life to win the day for us. So he used all kinds of things in the culture that were already there, part of the culture, and made the culture receptive to the gospel to preach the gospel to the Irish. And they opened up their hearts. I mean, the, 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 the number three, because of the three-leafed clovers, were sacred to the Irish. And so it, he had no problem explaining the Trinity to them. <laughs> they were like, yes, this makes sense, you know. <laughs> One God in three persons? Yes, it's like the Irish clover, you know. We like that. <laughs> and it's amazing how God had just sovereignly prepared the Irish. And at the right time, when he came, he was ready and the Irish were ready. He was ready for Ireland and Ireland was ready for him and for the gospel. Amazing. He writes, A few years later, I was again with my parents in Britain they welcomed me as a son, and they pleaded with me that after all the many tribulations I had undergone, I should never leave them again. I was, uh, it was while I was there that I saw in a vision of the night a man whose name was Victoricus coming, as it were, from Ireland with so many letters that they could not be counted. He gave me one of these, and I read the beginning of the letter the voice of the Irish people. While I was reading out the beginning of the letter, I thought I heard at that moment the voice of those who were beside the wood of Voclet near the Western Sea. They called out, as it were, with one voice, We beg you, holy boy, to come and walk again among us. This touched my heart deeply, and I could not read any further. I woke up then. Thanks be to God. After many years, the Lord granted them what they were calling for. Another night I heard authoritative words which I could not 
which I could hear but not understand, until at the end of the speech it became clear. The one who gave his life for you, he it is who speaks in you. And I awoke full of joy. And we see here that just like it says in Romans 8 verse 28 and 29 and 30, God makes all things work together for our good, and that good is us becoming more like Jesus and doing for others what Jesus did for us. Just like Joseph is a picture of Jesus, and he sacrificed for the salvation of others. So, St. Patrick was saying, he received in a dream that same word, basically. It is the one who died for you who is sending you back to the place of your slavery to go and do for them what he did for you. As the Father sent me, Jesus says, so I am sending you. So I am sending you. As the Father sent me to go and save the ones who hate me, so I am sending you to go and save the ones who hate you. I bore insults from unbelievers, um, Patrick goes on to say, so that I could hear the hatred directed at me for traveling here. I bore many persecutions, even chains, so that I could give up my freeborn state for the sake of others. If I be worthy, I am ready even to give my life most willingly here and now for the name. It is here that I wish to spend my life until I die, if the Lord should grant it to me. So what I'm trying to tell you is Joseph's life is not an exception. What Paul says is the same applies to all of us. And St. Patrick is just one example of it. You know, um, we can't live everywhere as though God sent us there unless, we, unless God intends to send us everywhere we live. Unless our coincidences are divine coincidences. Unless God is constantly at work in our lives and is more active in our lives than we realize. Um, I told this story before, but let me, let me just end off by telling it again. Because it just, it just illustrates how, when we look backwards and we see this reality in our lives, how we can reinterpret what happens to us. We were, um, Richelle and I were driving back from... I think it was from Bloemfontein to Stellenbosch or to Somerset West a couple of years ago. We had a car, a, a Volkswagen Turan, which we'd bought secondhand, but it was a bit of a dud. It gave so much trouble, and, and the trouble started on that trip. When we got to Beaufort or somewhere, it was actually before Beaufort, the, the power steering broke. Now, you know, the Turan is quite a heavy vehicle, you know. Without power steering, it's like trying to steer an ox wagon. You know, this thing is really heavy, you know. And I'm like, I was, I was, I got, the, you know, a lot of jimming done in that time, you know, trying to turn the steering wheel. And we, we drove, and then the, then the edge engine all of a sudden started giving trouble. We found out later on that it was the, the turbo pipe that had broken. And, and, you know, the air was leaking out, so the turbo wasn't working properly. And, you know, now the thing was just going like, you know, 60, 70 kilometers an hour you know if you're lucky 80 at a downhill you know and you know <laughs> and you need to try and you know if you need to try and overtake cars you know you know you, you got some cars crawling at 50 and now you have to crawl by at 60 you know <laughs> it was so frustrating you know and, and we spent hours in Beaufort you know from being sent from pillar to post to try and get a mechanic who can help us uh, and and reset because what what happened was one of the sensors in the power steering broke it wasn't even the power, there was nothing wrong with the power steering, just one of the sensors broke. And then the guy plugged in the electric thing, reset the sensor, and boom, the power steering is working again. But then you drive 100 kilometers and the sensor you know, acts up again and the power steering dies again. And it was just, you know, it was so frustrating. I remember it, was, it just added hours upon hours upon hours to our trip. And it was just frustrating the whole time. And I remember us driving there, you know, in the heat of the day. Because we'd, we'd driven early in the morning. I think we'd left by 2, 3 o'clock so that we could miss the heat of the day. But now, you know, because of the, all the delays, we were like driving there through the Karua, you know, the, in the heat of the day. And it was like, ah, you know, this is so hot. And as we were driving, I mean, you get these strips in the Karua 
where there's like these, this straight piece of, of road. You come over a mountain and you go through this valley and it's just like this long straight piece of road and then you go up a, a hill or a mountain again. And, and just a little way in front of us, we saw this bucky, you know, sort of swerving over the road like this. And we sort of drove closer. And as we drove closer, uh, we realized this guy was falling asleep at the wheel. You know, and, 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 and we saw a bunch of cars and a big truck coming from the front and this guy was falling asleep at the wheel and, and he started going across slowly. He started going across the, the line into the other lane in front of the truck. So we were just behind him. So we, we, we charged you know, as fast as we could with our broken car. <laughs> we charged on around him and right next to him. I mean, right next I could see the guy sort of sleeping at the wheel. I could, I could see him like his head was like down. He was, he was out. He was sleeping. And, and I, you know, hooted at him like, like hard and, and, and loud and like... like woke up, you know, with a fright, and he, like, pulled the car back, the bucket back, and then he pulled off to the side of the road, and I thought he would, I think he had a, the fright of his life, because he saw the truck right in front of him, you know, and he pulled off, and we, we drove on by, and I, and I just thought, you know, if, if all the delays and all the trouble with our cars had not happened, we would not have passed that guy at exactly the time, exactly the time when he fell asleep behind the wheel. Do you think that guy is one of those guys that Paul is talking about in Romans 8 verse 28 where God is making all things work together for his good? (laughs) Something tells me he's one of those guys. (laughs) He's one of those guys. And all of a sudden, looking back, when that happened, we could reinterpret all the delays, all the car trouble, all the frustration and say, okay, God used us to save a guy's life. God used us to save a guy's life. Was all of that trouble worth it? You bet. I want you to just close your eyes right there where you're sitting. Just close your eyes. Where do you need to reinterpret your life? To see that all of your coincidences are divine coincidences, which God is working to work all things together for your good and for the good of for the salvation of people around you. How does God want to use the bad and the, and the tragedy and the hardship and the suffering that you went through or that you are going through for your good and for the good of other people to save them? I just want you, as your eyes are closed, there, just think of these situations and say, Holy Spirit, show me, show me the areas in my life which I'm misinterpreting because I'm not seeing your hand in it and help me to reinterpret it. Love God, and I called according to His purpose. I want to encourage you and, and just tell you that your life is not a tragedy. Sometimes it might feel like a tragedy. It's not a tragedy. God is busy working all things together for your good. We can live everywhere as though God sent us there. Because God intends to send us everywhere we live. Father God, we just want to thank you, Lord, that even though we don't understand it, Lord, even though it doesn't even fit into the realm of possibility for us when we think about it, Lord, Lord, we know that you are so much greater than us and, 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 and you are actually able to work all things together for our good. We know that. We believe that. And we trust you for that. And we trust, Lord, that like in the life of Joseph, like in the life of Paul the Apostle, like in the life of St. Patrick of Ireland, that you are busy working in our lives, all things in our lives together for not only our good, but for the good of people that you want to reach through us, that you want to save through us. And we pray, Lord God, that you will turn our mess into a message, our test into a testimony, that you'll turn our tragedy 
listening to the greatest love story of all time. So that, that, that you'll put your glory on display in our lives. So that others can see and turn to you. Lord, we don't understand, always understand how you could possibly do that in our lives, but we trust you for that. Help us to live everywhere as though you sent us there. In Jesus' name. Let's just stand for a moment. Just just put um, Romans 8 up again on the screen, just for a, a moment. Romans 8 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And a while back I was reading that, and I realized the problem that we have as modern Christians. The problem is not that God has changed. The problem is that we don't know about God what Paul and them knew about God. The problem is we cannot say, and we know, that in all things God is working together for our good. Even if God is working together for our good, we as modern Christians often don't know it. We're blissfully unaware of it. We don't know what Paul and the early church knew. But if we do know it, then we can live everywhere as though God sent us there and have the massive life-changing influence that guys like Joseph and St. Patrick had. Isn't that what we want? Not only for ourselves, but for our disciples, for our children. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what South Africa needs? Isn't that what Canada needs? Don't the countries of the world need people who can live everywhere as though God sent them there? In whose lives God is working through a series of divine coincidences to bring about salvation. Isn't that, isn't that what is needed? God, we, want, we pray that we will be your Josephs, that we will be your Patricks, that we will be your Pauls, that we will be the people that you need. We come and surrender ourselves to you and say, work in us and work through us to do your will. Lord, and I just want to pray your blessing upon your people, Lord. Lord, I know you're going to bless them and you are blessing them and working all things for their good. But I want to pray the blessing of sight upon them. I want to pray that they will see, that they'll have the joy of seeing you, of noticing how you are at work in their lives and in their lives and through their lives. I pray that that all of our eyes will be opened so that we can say with Paul, we know what God is doing. We know that in all things He's working for our good. Lord, and I just want to, I just want to pray, Lord, especially for every single person here this morning who needs encouragement. We're discouraged because they go, they've gone through hardship. They are going through hardship. Things seem to be falling apart in their lives. Lord, I want to pray, Lord God, that you'll help them to reinterpret, to see, to reinterpret their lives, to see that when things seem to be falling apart, they're really actually falling into place. In Jesus' name. Lord, and I want to pray that you'll encourage your saints through your word and through your spirit. In Jesus' name.